Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Hello, America. It is Eric Erickson right here across the nation. Uh, this just in to the Eric Erickson Show happening a, about, oh, 10 minutes ago. The President of the United States speaking on his return to the White House. Um, let's see. I got to boost the audio here because you can barely hear this. I just spoke with Buttigieg. They don't know what the cause is, but I was on the phone in about 10 minutes. I phone report directly to me when I find out. That's the president saying, I spoke to Buttigieg. They don't know what the cause is. I told him report directly to me when they find out. That's the president of the United States. They have no idea why the uh, notice to airmen system, I'm sorry, the notice to air missions system collapsed. I wonder, I, I just, I don't know, how many government bureaucrats sat around and came up with, with the idea that like, guys, we got to have a, we got to have a panel discussion. This is serious. We've got it. We've got to fix the NOTAM system. But well, you know, we, we could use, I mean, cellular, we could, we could switch to 5G now. They've all got towers. You know, we could use, no, 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 no. We're, we're not talking about the technical operations of the system. We have to make it gender neutral. It stands for Notice to Airmen. Shall we change it to Notice to Air People? Well, then you can't get the 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 the, the M in there. What what is it? We got to go No Tam No Tam um, uh, Air 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 Medics. Um, air Air Missions. That's it. Notice to Air Missions. We'll go with Missions. And that was their fix. And the whole system crashed this morning. Aviation across America grounded. How long does Mayor Pete stay on the job? He should be the first one they push out the door. Nonetheless, I must move on. Uh, this is the President of the United States. It took him a while to respond on the classified documents they found. Mr. First, well, let me get rid of the easy one first. People know I take classified uh, documents and classified information seriously. When my lawyers were clearing out my office at the University of Pennsylvania, they set up an office for me, secure office in the Capitol, when I, the four years after being vice president, I was a professor at Penn. Uh, they found some documents in a box, in a locked cabinet, or at least a closet. And as soon as they did, they realized there were several classified documents in that box. And they did what they should have done. They immediately called the archives, immediately called the archives, turned them over to the archives. And I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. But I don't know what's in the documents. I've, my lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives, and we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review, and which I hope will be finished soon, and uh, there'll be more detail at that time. The first question now, I forgot. Your uh, first question related to... I asked if we... Uh, I asked if the... I'm only joking. The answer is... <laughs> 
The answer is you've got both. Ah, ha, ha. Only joking. Played it off. Uh, one more here. This is uh, Mike Mamoli on NBC News. It was interesting and I think important to note that White House advisors at the highest levels would have known that this issue was ongoing for at least two months, given the timeline we were given from the White House yesterday. And so I think one of the questions is about why they've waited for this story to sort of break in the news on its own uh, versus being fully transparent, disclosing this as soon as it happened two months ago. Yeah, so that's the issue here. I think as a matter of intellectual honesty, and this makes my friends on the right mad at me for trying to, to handle this with some level of intellectual honesty, there is a difference between the Trump withholding of classified documents and, and the Biden one. The Biden one, as far as we know, and it, it, look, the story can change. We should acknowledge that as well, and the left should too. The story can change. But it does appear, while we don't know how the documents got there, we do know how the documents got to Mar-a-Lago. But the moment they were discovered, uh, Biden's lawyer called the archives, said we got, looks like, classified documents among some unclassified documents. We need to hand them over, and they did. There's going to be an investigation. I'm sure it'll be a superficial investigation. But the difference, big difference, is with Trump. They knew they were taking classified documents for sure. Probably Biden did too, if everyone's honest. The National Archives asked for them back, which doesn't appear to be the case with Biden. The Trump team said, we've sent you everything. The archive says, no, you didn't. They began a protracted negotiation. And then finally they sent in the FBI. There actually are differences. However, there is one big difference that I think matters greatly. And that is they sent the FBI in to raid Donald Trump's office and made sure everyone knew about it and made it a big political issue in the run-up to the election. And this happened before the election as well. And they kept it quiet, covered it up, and didn't let anybody know, even though now the president admits he was advised at the time. So they willfully and knowingly made one as political as possible and shut the other one up so that no one would know about it until after the election. I actually think that matters greatly because this White House has worked overtime to politicize issues related to Donald Trump and tie all Republicans to him, and to a degree it worked. Now, we spent enough time talking about the election, after the election. There's no need to dwell inordinately on it, but it it must be said that, in fact, candidates who were tied very strongly to Donald Trump lost. And it's one reason Republicans lost the Senate. Donald Trump's picks performed poorly. Dr. Oz was not a good candidate. And Dr. Oz, if we are fair and honest, did not have a ton to do about Donald Trump. He just ran a bad campaign. He actually pivoted away from Donald Trump. But a lot of the Trump candidates, they doubled down on tying themselves to Donald Trump. Kerry Lake is in Miami or in, in um, Palm Beach at Mar-a-Lago now saying essentially they cost her the election, whoever they is. They stole all the elections except when she lists them. They stole all the elections except the Treasury, the legislature, and the Congress. So 
You mean they didn't steal? They they didn't steal the congressional. They could have maintained Congress or gotten really really close had they stolen those congressional seats in Arizona and somehow they didn't steal those seats. They didn't steal the the state legislature in Arizona. They could steal everything, but they didn't steal that. I, I have a hard time believing that the Democrats are clever enough to steal the state school superintendent slot but not steal the legislature. I think they wound up actually not stealing the state school superintendent. They, they, they supposedly, they stole the attorney general of Arizona. So they could steal the governor. They could steal the lieutenant governor. They could steal the attorney general, but they couldn't steal the state school superintendent. They couldn't steal the state treasurer. They couldn't steal the legislature. They, they, really, do you really believe this crap? That's what she's saying. The people who did that lost. The people who tied themselves to Donald Trump lost. The ones who set out on their own who were good candidates to begin with, so not a Herschel Walker, not a Dr. Oz, the good candidates who Donald Trump in some cases backed. And they made the race about local issues and crime and the economy. Almost all of them won. Adam Laxalt, one of the rare, really good candidates who made it local and he lost. But the Democrats did a great job tying him to Donald Trump. And the Republicans in Nevada were kind of clueless too. All of this being said, very importantly, Republican candidates who made it about other things, they all won. Brian Kemp won. Greg Abbott won. Ron DeSantis won big. J.D. Vance won. It's closer, but he won. Around the country, Republicans who ran on local issues, all politics is local. They made it about local issues. They won. And so here's the thing the Democrats are going to do. They're going to try harder to tie everyone to Donald Trump. But it becomes real hard for them to do that when they themselves have done the things that Donald Trump did, like Joe Biden keeping classified documents. It also becomes much harder because, um, well, I mean, the reality is people don't like the Democrats. They, they, they don't like Republicans either. But the progressive subset of Democrats, they really don't like them. I mean, moderate Democrats even, even won in Democratic primaries. When they come for yourself, this is why they had to rush back the whole ban in your gas stove thing, because it's going to infuriate people, and people infuriated do not want to engage. People infuriated, they, they, don't, they don't want the Democrats to come for their stoves. I mean, you had Hollywood chefs yesterday, like famous chefs from Hollywood, blasting the Biden administration for coming for their gas stoves. And they won't vote Republican, but they may stay home. And we found that in some states around the country where when you had hardcore progressives, a lot of people, they didn't, they, they just didn't vote. They didn't want to vote Republican. They wanted to be able to say with straight face, I've never voted Republican, but they refused to vote Democrat. Now we're headed into a recession after inflation was transitory, a recession's not coming and the recession comes. You've got the wokes out there, the progressives. All Republicans have to do is just not be crazy. They get a do-over for 2024, 
put up candidates who aren't crazy, who aren't tied to Trump and who don't campaign the entire time on a stolen election and you're going to kick the Democrats' butt. It's just that easy. And the Democrats, they fundamentally know it, but they can't help themselves because they've been overrun by a bunch of progressive elites, particularly rich white women with college degrees who refuse to have anything to do with anyone who disagrees with them on anything. And that's going to marginalize them come 2024 when Republicans put up a diverse array of people. Look at the speaker fight. The Democrats, until the end, when people started pointing it out, the Democrats put up the same people every time to nominate Hakeem Jeffries. The Republicans were putting up women. They were putting up non-white people. They were showing how diverse they've become. Byron Donalds went on Joy Reid's show I pray for the man and, and hope he didn't suffer brain damage by coming into contact with that woman, but he went on there and defended himself and his policies. Good for him. I think it's a waste of time. You're, you're, you're no, no moderate voter. You know, more modern and independent voters watch Fox News than MSNBC. MSNBC is just the party line um, TV for the left. But he went there and he engaged them. The Republicans have a path forward in 2024 that the Democrats don't have. All they have to do is not be crazy if they can do it. And hopefully 2022 was their wake-up call that they got to fix this candidate selection process. And if they can, and I think they will, they can outperform. If you own a small to medium-sized business that kept employees on payroll through COVID, you may have a big cash refund waiting for you. The employee retention credit is a tax credit of up to $26,000 per employee, and now more businesses than ever qualify. The experts at RefundsPro.com specialize in cutting through the red tape of qualifying for this government program. Most of their refunds are over $100,000. Even businesses that have received PPP funds may be eligible, and there are absolutely no fees unless you receive a refund. There's no reason not to apply. If your business experienced shutdowns, limited capacity, supply chain challenges, or even reduced revenue due to COVID, you likely qualify. RefundsPro.com has already helped hundreds of businesses, so don't lose the refund you're owed by missing the deadline. Get started today with a free five-minute questionnaire at refunds with an S, RefundsPro.com. That's refunds with an S, Pro. Com. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. It's my show. By the way, the phone lines are open now. Uh, they had to be closed earlier, but if you tried to call and it was busy, you can call in now, 877-973-7425. I am going to just, just fair warning and full disclosure, I'm going to talk about food at the moment. I have to get back to sending out recipes. I know. I've been working on some recipes. But I got to tell you guys what I did. Uh, two two wild recipes. Uh, one, I came across Wagyu New York strip. But it was thinly, thinly sliced, like uh, maybe a centimeter thick slices. Basically, it was the end of some, and uh, it wasn't enough to make a full steak, cut a full inch steak. So they cut it up into pieces, and, and and they had like two packages of this. And so I got it. And you know those ham sandwiches I make? I've talked about them before. It's basically, I mean, it's ham, bechamel sauce, it's fontina cheese. You bake it in the oven. I did it with this Wagyu, except I put it on my Rectech, and I smoked it. 
Uh, I smoked it for like 30 minutes. That That's all at like 225, smoked it. And then I threw that uh, those pieces of steak on my grill and seared both sides of it. I mean, they were on the grill for no more than a minute, 30 seconds on each side, basically. And I made those sandwiches with that. I got to tell you, one of the best things I have ever cooked in my life. Uh, there were none of them left over. It made 24 sandwiches. There was not a single one left over with some Fontina cheese. And I used my um, homemade barbecue sauce recipe, made it a little spicy. It was fantastic. And then on Sunday, I decided to make wild card pizza. So there's this restaurant. It's in Atlanta. It's called Marcel's Steakhouse. Ford Fry, the restaurateur, great guy, fantastic restaurants. Marcel's is this fantastic steakhouse. It's a French-style steakhouse. If you're into veal parmesan, best veal parmesan in the southeast United States is in this restaurant. But they do a bread service, and they do uh, focaccia with ricotta and prosciutto. And I thought, I bet that would be great on pizza. I was making a ricotta cheesecake, which reminds me, Philip, you need to come get the rest of this or it's going to get thrown away. Uh, your wife is clearly going to want a piece. Uh, I made a ricotta cheesecake, and I had all this ricotta leftovers. Like, what do I do? So I was making pizza. I made some, like, deep dish pizza, and I mixed the focaccia with, or mixed the, the ricotta with lemon and garlic and rosemary and just let it sit. And then I put that on the pizza and put strips of really, really, really thin sliced prosciutto on top, stuck it in the oven. I got the, let the the ricotta sit on top first in the oven for a few minutes and then put that prosciutto on top. Holy cow, drizzled honey on it. That probably was one of the best, weirdest things. I mean, it was sounds weird, but it was incredibly good. And it, I mean, the flavors were great. The, the garlic, the rosemary, um, the lemon in the ricotta, and then the honey on top of the prosciutto. It was salty. It was sweet. It was garlicky. I really, one day, I'm going to have to write a cookbook, aren't I? I? I guess I am. Okay. When we come back, I, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of proud of myself. I, you know, I, so I, I have a cookbook collection and my cookbook collection probably exceeds 500 books and I'm not making, I mean, I've got like two like wall to ceiling to floor, wall to wall bookshelves covered in, in cookbooks. And I never really cook out of them. I get inspiration for things I want to make and I dabble in them. And this one, I was like, I think these flavors, I could put this together and it would work, and it really did work. I was impressed with myself for making it work. Okay, when we come back, the road ahead for the Republicans, they're starting to stack their committees, and if you see how they're stacking, for example, the Appropriations Committee, in the run-up to the debt ceiling fight, and the Treasury Department is announcing we're on the verge of having to raise the debt ceiling, you can see the fights that are already coming ahead with this administration. And if the Republicans play just, I mean, even they don't have to even have to play full-on smart. Just, just don't be so stupid. They're going to rack up some big wins. We'll talk about it. Greetings. Hello. How are you? It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Okay. We got to talk about the, some of the fighting ahead because there's some intrigue happening in the House of Representatives that if you don't have the inside scoop, I happen to have the inside scoop. It's intriguing. For a number of years, Andy Harris, uh, Congressman Harris, has been the Republican 
conservative stalwart from Maryland who sits on the Appropriations Committee. He was, if you will, a token. The Republicans could put Harris on the Appropriations Committee and say, look, conservatives, you you, you got one of your guys. You, you got a, a, a right winger there. And he moved off. Then he came back on and they would jockey him around. Well, it appears now, based on what I am reading and being told, that uh, Andrew Clyde of Georgia and Michael Cloud of Texas will be joining the Appropriations Committee. I have it on pretty reliable authority. So, you're going to have three strident conservatives, who two of whom opposed Kevin McCarthy, sit on the Appropriations Committee. What does the Appropriations Committee do? Well, it appropriates the money. What did Kevin McCarthy agree to do? Pass the 12 appropriations bills. You see where the fight is starting already, don't you? The Treasury Department is signaling the debt ceiling is coming. The debt ceiling is coming. We're going to hit up against that limit. We're at like $31 trillion in debt. $31 trillion, $32 trillion. And they're going to have to raise the debt ceiling. They're already beginning to tell you that this is coming. They're already beginning to tell us publicly uh, this is this is coming. You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to raise it. Get ready for it. Will there be a fight? The Republicans have already said they intend to cut spending, and they intend to tie a dead ceiling increase spending. And it does make me wonder, does make me wonder, will they go back to sequestration? So the admiral in charge of the navy. Let, let me let me get your let me get you the name right. Um, this is going to set up. A, he's going to get admonished. Uh, the uh, yeah, navy. Uh, it's navy secretary Carlos Del Toro. Now I don't know anything about Carlos Del Toro. Let's learn about Carlos Del Toro together. He's a Cuban American businessman. Retired U.S. Naval officer. He's the 78th United States Secretary of the Navy. He's been in there since 2001. He was born in Cuba. Came to the United States as a child. Raised in Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan. He's got an electrical engineering degree from the Naval Academy. He's got a Master of Science in National Security from the Naval War College. He's a Master of Professional Studies degree from George Washington University. He retired as a commander in the United States Navy, served as the Office of Secretary of Defense and Special Assistant uh, within the Office of Management and Budget. He was the commanding officer of the USS uh, Bulkley. After he retired, he founded a technology company uh, that uh, specializes in management and engineering, working with government clients. He's on the board of a think tank. He was nominated by Joe Biden to be Secretary of the Navy. 
He was approved by the U.S. Uh, Senate. Overwhelmingly, they love the guy. The Senate loves the guy. He was confirmed by voice vote. He believes in a robust presence in the South China Sea against China. He's an he's a sailor's sailor. And Carlos del Toro today, he's just said this. Carlos del Toro, the naval secretary. Hang on. I should turn the recorder on for this one for Philip. Joe Biden's Navy secretary, Carlos del Toro, served as a commander in the Navy, went into the private secretary, has come back to be the head of the Navy. Says within the next six months, the United States Navy is going to have to make a choice. Arm itself or arm Ukraine. That's right. Arm itself or arm Ukraine. Now, most of the weaponry that we send to Ukraine is military weapons that are not naval weapons. They're uh, Air Force, Army, they're land operations weapons. The problem, however, is that this is starting to cut into the military budget overall, and Republicans are suggesting there will be defense cuts. I want you to be very, 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 very clear here. I support a robust, massive military for the United States. But to say we can't cut $75 billion from the United States defense budget is hysterical nonsense. There is waste, there's fraud, there's abuse, there are stupid weapon systems that could be consolidated. There are stupid military projects. I mean, even the Navy itself has invested in building some ships that are garbage. Force them to prioritize. Now, what the, what the military tends to do is they tend not to prioritize. What they do is they build all the garbage in addition to the good stuff. And then they say, well, I mean, we're going to have to go to the garbage. It's cheaper than the good stuff as opposed to stop all the garbage and just build the good stuff. That's what the military does. And you need to understand this. I am a defense hawk. I, I want a robust, massive military for the United States. I want to sp- I want to bring back the F-22. I think we should bring back the F-22. I want a massive military. I want more nuclear weapons. But the idea that you can't cut the military budget at all is nonsense. And it is nonsense embraced by a lot of people on the right. And they ignore the fact that the the a lot of the defense budget goes to subsidizing Boeing to keep Boeing in business because Boeing would otherwise collapse because it's been taken over by bean counters who made them cut costs on commercial aviation. So they started making a bunch of garbage airplanes. And you've got companies like Delta that are now buying more Airbus than, than Boeing because the way Boeing innovates is to cut out good stuff and make bad stuff and the government's got to keep them afloat. If the appropriators would kill the Export-Import Bank, we'd be better off because Boeing depends on the Export-Import Bank to stay alive. And Boeing, depending on government subsidy, doesn't have to adapt, doesn't have to bring in greater efficiencies. Lockheed Martin depends on the federal government. And listen, Lockheed Martin makes some great weapon systems. 
Still think they need to bring back the F-22, but that's neither here nor there. Won't argue with you on it. I'm just saying the military budget can be cut by $75 billion and still grow the military if they got rid of all the crap projects. I'm not opposed to experimentation, but when you bring in some of the experimentation and it doesn't work well and you just decide to double down on it, that's bad management. And the Navy and the Army and the Air Force and the Space Force and the Marines, they're really good at dragging out the spending and saying all of these things, nothing can be cut. We need all the money as opposed to prioritizing. They've never had to prioritize. They're like addicts. You know, if you stop buying the crack, you could actually afford to live in a house. If you stopped, if you got over your meth addiction, you could get out of the uh, out of the gutter and stop whoring yourself every day for more meth money. Maybe get yourself in a halfway house and get your life back together. Uh, but nope, nope, they don't want to do that. They would rather they would rather be the the crack addicts in the gutter, surrounded by garbage and human feces, than actually clean their lives up. That's the problem with the military because you they know they know conservatives are going to say you can't cut this budget. How dare you? Do you want us all to die? What about China? So they never have to prioritize. They never have to make cuts. They never have to look at things and say, you know what? We're wasting money on this. They never have to do that because they know the Republicans themselves will go after even conservatives who say it's only $75 billion. Maybe having conservatives on the Appropriations Committee will finally force the Pentagon to realize you got to step up, man. You can't just exist to keep Boeing in business. Your naval yards could be more efficient and some of your boats are garbage. The successor, the uh, $8 billion USS Zumwalt, it has failed to meet naval expectations. A $30 billion troubled ship project billed as affordable the Congressional Budget Office projects $12.3 billion for just 10 frigates. And there's a 50% chance the first two ships will exceed their cost. The Navy's got problems. For the Admiral, for, for the Secretary of the Navy to say the U.S. has to choose between it and Ukraine sets up a fight the Republicans want, by the way. The Republicans want more accountability on the Ukraine project. Look, I want to fund Ukraine. I want to beat the Russians. I want to fund Ukraine. I want to give them everything they need to beat the Russians. But I also recognize blank checks can't cut it when we're $31 trillion in debt. This sets up the Republicans nicely for a fight they want to have about funding Ukraine. And by the way, a majority of the Republicans want to fund Ukraine. They just don't want to give them that much money. They don't want to give them blank checks. We're going to have fights on our hands. And these, by the way, these are the fights worth having. These are the fights Republicans should have because I think the American people do get it. We're upwards of $31, $32 trillion in national debt. We are yet again running up against the debt ceiling. It's time for the fight. It's time to bring some fiscal sanity here. And by the way, bringing back sequestration wouldn't be a bad thing. Dollar for dollar real world cuts. These were not cuts to the future growth of government. They were real world cuts to existing product pro projects when sequestration went through. A lot of conservatives got that wrong. A lot of conservatives said, oh, this is just growth to the future of spending. No, no, no. These were real world, real time cuts. We need these cuts. And by the way, with interest rates going up, our debt service payments on the national debt go up. 
So the spending is going to be the big fight, and it should be the big fight. It is necessary to fight this fight. It is necessary to force government agencies to cut back. Frankly, there are government agencies we could scrap. Like, for example, Joe Manchin just yesterday said, if getting rid of gas stoves is the biggest thing the Consumer Product Safety Commission thinks we need to do in America, maybe it's time to save money by getting rid of the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Can we not have a BRAC commission instead of closing military bases, closing government agencies? It's probably time and start with the one that wants to ban the gas stove until it doesn't. Hi there, it's Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on the program, I will allow it. I want to go back to the stove thing. Here at the end gotten several emails from listeners you can always email me eric at ewerickson.com it's based on noah rothman and his piece the, the attack on things that work there is this belief i think on the left that efficiencies have become bad if we were more inefficient, we would be forced to slow down and contemplate. There is almost this, this idea growing among progressives that we move so fast as a society now, we can't slow down and recognize that that speed and efficiency have calamitous effects on the world around us. Now, interestingly enough, there's a strain of conservatism as well that that says this, that uh, we move so fast, we can't appreciate the impact that speed and efficiency has on our family and our lives and our community. Uh, The difference, however, is the right when it focuses on this speed and efficiency and the need for some inefficiencies to exist to force people to slow down and contemplate, it's about the fallout of your family and your friends and your children and your immediate community and your household and you. And with the left, it's about about the environment. Ellen DeGeneres, I didn't ask Charlie to cut up the audio. I probably should have gotten him to cut up the audio for me, but I didn't want to. Didn't want him to be subjected to Ellen DeGeneres yelling at the camera, telling people that Mother Nature is angry with us and we have to do something to mollify Mother Nature as she was this, this flood in her backyard. Uh, these these storms are rolling through California. I wish they could get over the mountains and get into the desert to, to Nevada and Utah and, and provide more water there. But uh, they roll off the mountains on the California side and head back out to the Pacific, and there are no reservoirs in California to store the water. The California environmentalists refuse to build the reservoirs. And now, of course, they say we need to tear down the levees and allow the flooding to happen so that the water absorbs into the aquifers. Maybe. Just sounds like a good excuse to avoid building more reservoirs. But nonetheless, so Ellen's generous standing out the camera says, oh, it's all us. We've angered Mother Nature. we got to do something. It's always us. And it's always not about us. We are the cause and the blame. 
We are the solution. If everything is about us and everything is our cause, we are the solution. But it's always about improving the externalities of life, the environment, Mother Nature, the world around us, as opposed to us and taking care of us. There is this real dynamic as the same conversation is happening on the left and the right about needing some efficiencies. We've gotten too efficient. We've moved too fast. We don't slow down. We're tethered to our phones. We have no downtime. Uh, we're, we're, we're moving chaotically forward, slow down, have some inefficiencies. I kind of agree with the need for some inefficiencies in life. But it's about improving my life, not the planet. And that's where the divergence is. The left doesn't need you or want you to improve your life unless improving your life is about conforming to some left-wing ideal about the planet. You know, one of the efficiencies in life I've started embracing more and more, it's, it's with cooking, making my own pasta. It is a process. I find it cathartic. You start with the eggs and the flour, the salt, and you need 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 and you have a ball of pasta. And then you break it into pieces, you roll it out, you flatten it, you roll it through the roller several times, you have really good pasta and you make a sauce that you've simmered all day with it, it forces the world to slow down. But notice in the force and the slowdown, it's about my quality of life and my family. And with the left, it's about how we've polluted things by, by steamrolling through. The efficiencies of farming, what have we done? We've lowered the price so people have better access to better foods. You know, it's a whole lot cheaper to go out and buy a box of pasta. And the difference is I'm making a choice in what I'm doing. With the left, they want compulsion and control. They want you to do these things, and they want the government to make you do these things that drive up your costs and introduce inefficiencies that drive up the costs further in a way to save you from yourself. Two worldviews. We all see a problem. What I find interesting is that on my side, when I recognize the problem, I embrace it about helping my family and the left when they see the problem, they identify it as helping this nebulous, abstract mass in Mother Earth. And that sends us off into policy conclusions for the left that are deeply problematic unless you're a rich white person. And they can't acknowledge that because then they decide government will subsidy everyone.